Good morning everyone, and welcome back to Video Game Postscripts. Apologies for the bit of delay between podcasts on this one, but I did play three games instead of one for the podcast that we're doing right now, so you're going to have to forgive me. Today, we're looking at the band, Band of Brothers. The game I'm about to discuss is a lot like Band of Brothers, which is why I was about to say it. We're looking at the Brothers in Arms series of video games, specifically the three mainline PC entries, not the, I think it's like 15 plus mobile and portable entries, and there's a lot of Brothers in Arms games, but we're just looking at the three main PC entries, what they were good at, what they were bad at, why I think the series died, thank you Gearbox, and then how they really represented a very specific point in video game history mostly relating around first-person tactics games and why I think those aren't a thing anymore. All right, let's get, get into it. So getting right into it with the first in the three mainline Brothers in Arms games, we've got Brothers in Arms Road to Hill 30. So this is a video game released on PC in the year 2005. And the way I want to start describing this game and really how I want to start describing this series is I want to describe their mood and storytelling first because I think that's the most distinctive element that's still worth remembering and then how that ties into the gameplay. So Brothers in Arms Road to Hill 30 is another World War II first person shooter. Yes, I know there's a million of them. You can't really throw a stick without hitting one. The difference is whoever made Brothers in Arms Road to Hill 30 was really, really, really into the HBO prestige TV series called Band of Brothers. For those who don't know, Band of Brothers, I think it came out in 2001. It was like one of the early HBO prestige TV series, and it's about a parachute company fighting for the American army during World War II. And it was really well received. I think it does a lot of things well, I really loved it as a teenager. Obviously, as you age and you get more into the history, you can notice some inaccuracies, but it's a well-produced, well-made TV series that I recommend watching. Brothers in Arms, the video game, loves this TV series. And I don't mean like it kind of apes it, like a little bit here, a little bit there. I mean, in terms of tone, feel, editing, and text, a lot of it is identical. So like the title scene for the video game, and the music used in the title scene are almost the same as this TV series. Every chapter of the video game opens using the same font with the same red line on a black screen against it, exactly the same as the TV series. There are actual scenes and action set pieces that are almost ripped like moment for moment from this TV series. Like for something that's not an official game tie-in, like I don't know what copyright was back like back in the day, but you could definitely see the similarities slash get sued. I'm not really a lawyer, so this is not legal advice. So what that means is the mood of Brothers in Arms Road to Hill 30 is the most sincere war movie, emotional heartstring tugging thing you're ever gonna see. Like so sincere, it's almost accidentally camp. Let me give you some examples to show what I'm talking about. The opening voiceover for the game Brothers in Arms has the main character, the first line, he's just talking about how he's thinking about his dad's divorce. And this is while he's in an airplane about to jump over Normandy during World War II. He's talking about his dad's divorce, 
and the advice his dad gave him, and then he has some very sincere dialogue about how the last eight days have been hell, and he's got this narration about, I've got 13 men's lives depending on me, 13 such an unlucky number. This is all delivered, like, straight up, at face value, as sincere as you can imagine. We then get a flash forward to one of your mates that he's talking about, standing up in a trench, losing his mind and firing a pistol and just yelling, take me, take me, and then he gets blown up. And so that's the mood that is set from the start, and this is going to continue throughout the rest of the game. There is a relentlessness to the narrative and mood of this game that almost succeeds in spite of itself. Like, every mission is going to open with, oh man, here's a gun, watch out for the blood on the gun. Or, oh, did you hear about so-and-so, they didn't make it and got shot out of the sky. Oh no, did you see so-and-so, like his leg got blown off. Oh man, that's my best mate. I was just remembering I was playing dice in Brooklyn and now he's blown up. Like every single intro and outro of the mission is this kind of relentless, almost like amateur theatrical, I'm 15 and I've just read my first war book, Energy. And in a way, it's almost effective because it's so relentless, it kind of accidentally mirrors the drudgery of what day-to-day combat in World War II might have been like emotionally, but I don't know if that's intentional or it's just so heavy-handed it kind of reaches its point in a roundabout way. So how does this relentless, grimdark mood of this World War II shooter tie into its gameplay? Well, surprisingly quite well. So if the mood is all about how all your friends are dying and this is horrible, the gameplay ties into it quite well because for a first-person shooter, your player character can't really shoot straight. Like anytime you aim down the size of your weapon, it's all swaying and hard to hit anything. Even if you aim correctly, you're probably just going to hit the cover that the enemy Germans are hiding behind. This is a deliberately depowered player character, which ties in super well to the main conceit of the game, which is that it's a first-person tactics game. So... Your player character can't really be a superhero in anything, but he's usually got a squad of about the three to six guys that he can point around and say, hi, behind this cover, shoot at this person, while the other half goes behind this cover and shoots at this person. And it really works well because you're so depowered as a player character, it forces you to rely on your squad, which then ties into all the squad have different quirks and narration, and then when some of them do die and very over-the-top, in obvious ways like it's almost effective because you've been forced to interact with them to a point where despite it being incredibly heavily handed you get the vibe like you kind of like know who these guys are so that when they die it means more so that's how the first brothers in arms game works so the first brothers in arms game it's pretty well received um It's critically well received, it sells a lot of games. This is 2005, so attempting any kind of slightly deeper narrative writing, even if it's aping prestige television, is kind of a step forward because it's 2005 and expectations for game writing were a lot lower. And the central gameplay conceit is fun. You've got this squad-based game, it's between yourself and like six other characters, so it's quite intimate, it's quite small, it's a fun tactics game. I do recommend that 
fans of first-person tactical shooters, give Brothers and Arms a go if they haven't already. The sequel um, is released pretty soon after this. So the sequel is, oh my goodness, Earned in Blood. That's what it's called. It's Brothers and Arms Earned in Blood. It's released pretty quickly after the first game's success. So it's on the same game engine. It's using a lot of the same characters as the first game. And it's like a companion piece. You take one of the characters from the first game and you're playing through what they're like. Like, sorry, not what they're like. You know what they're like because they're in the first game. You're playing through a side story that's kind of like the, oh, when you didn't see them for a mission in the first game, this is what they were actually doing. So being released so close to the first game, um, they're obviously very similar. The writing's equally heavy-handed, but perhaps more confident, so slightly better in that way because they're starting to get a feel for it of the heavy-handed narration and the I never asked for this. That's actually a line they say a lot. There's a lot of I never asked for this in this game. But it's just as sincere and heavy-handed storytelling. There's some better in-mission visual effects, um, which is fun because they've had a bit more time to fine-tune the engine. There's some minor improvements to the gameplay. You can get ammo off your teammates now and stuff like that. But essentially, it's the same deal. It's very heavy-handed, very sincere writing that clearly struck a chord with some people and struck a chord with me at the time, but, you know, I was a teenager and looking back is a little on the nose, to say the least. But the tactics is still good. They're fine-tuning the engine. They're more confident in what they're doing. So you've got a pretty well-received good sequel in Brothers in Arms Earned in Blood. Which brings us to the third and final mainline entry in the Brothers in Arms series. We've got Brothers in Arms Hell's Highway. So this is released in 2008, so again, if the first game is only released in 2005, we're talking quick turnaround times here, it is the early thousands, turnaround times are quicker, but still, they were pumping these things out to really try to capitalize on what they had stumbled into. So, Brothers and Arms Hell's Highway, uh, brand new game engine for this one, so it's got better graphics. Um, in terms of narrative impact, it is going for the same heavy-handed sincereness of uh, the first game, but if the first game like almost accidentally got kind of a war movie feel right, this game has now dropped the shark. Like the, this game, Hell's Highway, starts with a recap of all the high tension, high emotion moments of the first two games. Uh, it's all built up, the music's swelling, a lot of it's in slow-mo, but you've got no context if you haven't played the first two games. They're assuming that you have, otherwise they're going through like a tear-jerking moment, like right out of the gate. The problem with Hell's Highway is the first two games were basically copying Band of Brothers. This time they're on their own, and they just, I don't know. The narrative writing now jumps the shark from heavy-handedness into like absurdity. Like the very first mission opens with a dead Dutch woman and all the guys are like, don't worry, man, you saved her, even though it's clearly not true. It just feels unearned and a bit rushed and a little bit, a little bit on the nose. The problem, this would probably still be fine if they didn't also significantly alter the gameplay to the point where the gameplay now no longer reinforces this relentless heavy handedness of war. So Hell's Highway has now embraced third-person mode when you go into cover. May not seem like a big deal, except in the first two games, you were always in the perspective of your character. It was 
kind of relentless. You couldn't really escape it. And when you're trying to give orders, you're literally trying to peek your character around obstacles so you could tell guys where to go. And it kind of added to the whole uncertainty and confusion of the piece because you're trying to snap off shots while peeking around cover. Now you're in third person. It's a lot easier to hit enemies, so you're much more of a superpowered main character. And you don't really need to put yourself in danger to see where cover is because you always have perfect vision. So already we've got a major change of point of view, which is kind of not reinforcing the narrative anymore. There's also more HUD elements. It's much easier to discern what's going on. And it's a much more kind of cookie cutter by the book sort of tactics puzzle, which kind of ruins the whole we're in over our head, war so overwhelming, war is hell narrative part that was so heavy handed that it really needed the game to back it up. And without that being there, it's now just kind of fallen away entirely. Also, I don't know if they really understood what had happened in the first two games, because now when you finish an engagement, there's occasionally like slow motion headshots of you taking out the last Germans. And the final mission of the entire game is just like this rushed joyride on a tank where you just kind of go around the countryside mowing down waves of enemies. But it was an already precarious balance between the self-seriousness of the game, kind of reinforced by the difficult and first-person tactics challenge that's now just been tipped in favor of more typical shooters, which kind of undermines the narratives and takes it from just getting over the line to kind of like eye-rollingly bad, which is probably why this is the final game in the Brothers in Arms Mainline's entry. People, I think, subconsciously or not, felt this dissonance, didn't sell as well, there hasn't been any more Brothers in Arms games. So, now you know more about Brothers in Arms and how it was an interesting, if heavy-handed, World War II shooter that did some interesting tactical things before falling on its face, why are we talking about it at all? Because Brothers in Arms is one, a game series I liked, I want to talk about it, so there's that. But also, it represents a very specific little tiny subgenre of video game history, that being first-person tactics shooters with some third-person influences. So the similar games we're talking about from the time period are Star Wars Republic Commando, another first-person-like tactics game, Rambo 6 Las Vegas, even though that did go to third-person when you went into cover. And then there's a whole suite of games that are kind of in-person tactics games, sorry, in-the-moment tactics games, but a third-person. So we're talking about Freedom Fighters, also from 2005 from memory. Full Spectrum Warrior uh, started life as a military simulator, I think, and then just became a video game. You had SOCOM over on the PlayStation. You had Deadly Dozen, which released two indie titles that were, again, World War II shooters in third person, but based on in-the-moment tactics. And then you had Conflict Desert Storm. I think it almost had three games, but similar thing. You've got a squad, a small squad of people in the moment tactics, no larger strategic plan. If you wanted to include games that have a strategic plan, like from the beginning of the mission, then you've got the entire Rainbow Six catalog, you've got the Ghost Recon catalog, and you've also got the SWAT games, um, which were interesting in that you could do a strategic plan, but also were mostly moment to moment tactics. Um, other games that probably aped like this could also include The Thing. If you ever played The Thing tie-in game, tried to be a moment-to-moment -moment attack this game, didn't really nail the landing, but it was an interesting concept. So you had a few years where all these games were coming out, and then, of course, the XCOM remake comes out, and the entire tactics genre shifts. 
everything's not an XCOM clone, but everything's top down. You get two actions, one's move, one's shoot. And that's the way that tactics games have gone. But I just wanted to take, what has this been, like 20 minutes? Just to remember a period in time where tactics games were not all XCOM clones, but were instead all sort of clones of an in-person tactical, not quite simulation, but a little puzzle that was interesting. One final point that's interesting is XCOM itself tried to go backwards in time to make a game that was a third-person tactic shooter when they made XCOM The Bureau, which is like not a terrible game. It's not as good as the 2012 XCOM, but it's not bad. But that's a third-person, in-the-moment tactics game where you're commanding a small squad. So XCOM itself almost tried to throw back to the tiny little micro-era before it that it inadvertently destroyed. That's just an interesting fun fact. But now you know a little bit more about a tiny time in video game history when these first-person tactical shooters were all the rage. So, I don't know, if you're having a nerd off at a party, you can whip out some facts now. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Video Game Postscripts. Next time, we're discussing something quite near and dear to my heart, and that's the Metal Gear Solid franchise. Now, I'm letting you know ahead of time, we're not going to be covering all aspects of the Metal Gear Solid franchise, because that's a fucking 20-episode podcast all to itself. However... We're going to be talking about what I feel is an often overlooked point in how each mainline Metal Gear Solid game tries to deeply examine a particular type of relationship. Um, I think that'll be a lot of fun. So I hope you can join me then. Bye.